Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Episode 262, we go in-depth on Nazis and the occult on the 80th anniversary of World War II. Whew, man, it's heavy. That is, that is well, first of all, 80 years since World War II. So now, wow. basically, you know, pretty much anybody that would have fought in World War II is going to be in their late 90s. Yeah. And I think about all of my relatives that fought in the Second World War, and I've got two uncles that fought in there, and they both died in the 90s. Aww. So they, did, they didn't quite make it. But my one uncle actually uh, lied about his age in 1942. He, he was 16, and he lied about his age to sign up to go fight the Germans. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, I just think that's interesting because, like, you know, you lie about your age to buy beer or something like that, to lie about your age to go fight. I think it's just a, yeah. it's a scary thing. It was a different time. Well, and when you said he lied about his age, it's like, oh, did he lie and say that he was too young? No. He, <laughs> so they wouldn't have to go, but no, it's the opposite. He, right. He lied and said he was 18 so that he could go over to Europe and uh, punch some Nazis, I guess, was his thing. Wow. And good for him. Well, he survived. So that was good for him. But a lot of other people That's good. didn't. Even people in oh, our family gosh. didn't. Um, my other uncle who had served, he had gone over and... Uh, when my cousin was born in 1941 or whatever, he actually, uh, he, he had to come over, come back from Europe to uh, see her being born. And then he didn't see her again until 1944. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's how long these guys were over there. Not like these six month or nine month uh, deployments. They were out there for years. That's incredible. I keep saying that, but it really is. It's hard for us to fathom in this day and age. No, to think about that. I mean, plus, this wasn't a um, all-volunteer army. You know, you could be, in World War II, you were drafted all the way up to you were 40. Wow. So, uh, anyway, just thinking about World War II. We haven't really done, a, uh, we did a little bit on Winston Churchill last year. And, um, but we haven't done really the, the relationship of the, the Nazi ideology and the occult. But before we get to that, uh, we want to start with a brand new five-star iTunes review. Oh, man. Okay, that's good. That brings some light to the brings darkness. some light here. into the darkness. Exactly. Yes. Uh, and here's the review. Five stars. Like a multifaceted crystal by Zeta 3x3. From every angle, this podcast has something to offer. From the knowledgeable and entertaining hosts to the guests who share information from unique perspectives, the custom songs are a bonus from the creative <clears throat> genius of Mike and Wendy. <laughs> wow. I think I'm blushing a little. I am a little bit too. And that's coming from Azita Christian, Zeta 3x3. Yes, one of our guests. Uh, right. So she was a guest on the episode uh, where we talked about Beltane, episode 246, Blessings for Beltane, Magic and Rituals with Zeta Christian. And um, she also sent a little package to us. Isn't that cool? She, it's not just a digital review. It's like a, an actual present, like right. tangible gift. A magical gift. It's magical. And uh, especially, we will be talking about magic in this episode. Um, but she sent, it's, a, it's a, like a ritual bag. Um, and it's got a, a little ritual where it's got these, these ribbons with words attached. And so you put the ribbons in the bag with the words, and then every day you come by and you yank out a word and then think about what that word means to you and find meaning in that. Very cool. So it's, it's pretty cool. And so Zita's got her own podcast now, Ritual Recipes and uh, ritualrecipes.net. If you guys are interested in, in learning more about creating your own rituals, finding magic in your life, or finding you know how to make ceremonies special, um, Zeta is the expert on doing that. And ritual, rich, sorry, ritualrecipes.net is the tongue-twisting website you can go to uh, and learn more um, directly from her. 
Yes. Well, thank you, Zita. I remember talking to her and she was a very enjoyable conversation. Yes. And uh, it's very thoughtful of her to take the time to leave us that review and also to send us a gift in the mail. It's so sweet. It is very thoughtful. Um, The other thing, too, is that we are now entering the uh, Halloween season, the fall. Yes, the best. So we're coming up on uh, the equinox, right? It's the equinox in September. Uh, yes. Yes. So we're coming up in the fall equinox and then it's going to be Sam Hain and the veil between worlds is going to be thin. So magic's even more powerful. Yeah. I mean, and we know it's that time of year because when we got back from our weekend up north, the Halloween stores were here. They were not here when we left. They were here when we came back. That's (laughs) the Halloween Express. So we just got (laughs) back from the Michigan Paracon. Uh, If we met you at the Michigan Paracon, um, thank you for listening to See You on the Other Side. Um, Yeah. We appreciate you coming along for the journey with us as we explore paranormal phenomena uh, from the perspective of a rock band. So, okay, going back in. uh, Wendy, you remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? Oh, of course. Such a great movie. Right. And in Raiders, obviously, I mean, that... They, it, the whole idea is that uh, the Nazis are is searching for uh, religious and historical relics. Uh, yep. Uh, and so they're searching for uh, the lost Ark of the Covenant, which was um, a box that they put the Ten Commandments in. And it was said to have magical powers that when you open the Ark of the Covenant or whatever, they, it would lead soldiers into battle. And it would help them you know, in wars, and it helped the Israeli, Israeli kings in the wars. Um, so that was a little, uh, like, the, everybody's introduction to the idea that Nazis were into the occult was probably, at least our age, was Raiders <laughs> of the Lost Ark. Right. Everybody else may have learned about it from the Castle Wolfenstein series of video games. <laughs> or, actually, Hellboy. If you guys remember Hellboy. Yes, you remember Hellboy, Wendy? I do remember that, yeah. Well, he was, Hellboy was born actually as part of like a Nazi occult ritual where they were trying to summon a demon who would help them win the war. Uh-huh. So that's uh, so Hellboy came from that idea too, that the Nazis were obsessed with the occult and they were doing whatever they could in order to supernaturally win the Second World War. And so that's kind of, it's almost kind of a, um, uh, not necessarily a, a meme or whatever, but it's kind of, of a, a trope now, this idea of... Uh, you know, Nazis as occultists, as people who are really into uh, rituals and the satanic and everything. And it's kind of true. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not completely true. Like when they say that Hitler was uh, completely enamored by his astrologers and things, like he did have an interest in astrology, but that wasn't the only, you know, he still paid attention to his generals and stuff like that. He didn't just look in the green sheet horoscope or whatever and say like, <laughs> okay. Green sheet. <laughs> okay, that's a very wow. Milwaukee joke. I haven't thought the of that. The green sheet was like the, was like the entertainment <laughs> section of the Milwaukee Journal um, back in the day. And it was actually so, a green color, the paper was. Yeah. It's a green insert. So yeah, the newspaper print with black and white and then the funnies or the comics or whatever were in, yeah. in full color, but the green sheet was just black text on a piece of like mint green paper. So you could find it really easily. For- and that's <laughs> that's where they would have things like the horoscope or novelty news and news of the weird and things like that was in the green sheet. It was the fun so- part of the newspaper. That as a child, that was the part of the newspaper that I read the Me most. Me too. Was the green sheet. <laughs> so and I always read my horoscope. So we should go a little bit back into, um, well, why they were into the occult and, and their use of it. Because this idea of, I guess, Nazis doing like satanic rituals or demonic things like they talk about in Hellboy, that may not necessarily be true. But the use of the occult as a myth to inspire um, their soldiers to give the German people something to um, hold on to kind of thing. Now, that was not, I mean, that was very real. So when we talk about, first of all, September 1st, 1939 is considered the start of the first of Second World War, and it's when Germany invades Poland. And that, you know, that may have been why my uncle decided to sign up because we were so Polish. He's like, we're going to get those <laughs> bastards and free the homeland. Yeah. But, and, and then a couple days later, uh, 
England and France declare war on Germany because they have an they have an alliance with Poland that says if you know if any of these other countries move against you, uh, we will uh, will defend you. And so that was considered the beginning. So that eighty years ago is when that went down. Wow. And the thing is, actually, the Germans invading Poland, annexing Austria, taking parts of Czechoslovakia, that was part of uh, this mythos that they created. That See, the German people needed what they called Lebensraum. Mm. They needed some living space. That's literally, that's literally living space. And... Because these other countries weren't as uh, heavily populated as Germany, mm-hmm. and because the people who were considered living in those countries, the Polish, uh, were a Slavic people, and they were considered a little farther down on the racial scale. Okay, that's when we need your land. You know, we need the Lebensraum. Yeah, and um, they did that because we're a superior race, and this goes right back to um, this idea of racial science which was popular in the 19th and the early 20th century and before we you know make fun of the nazis or whatever <laughs> and we we can, we can make fun of the nazis all night and all day if you'd like um but before we get to them remember that the united states at that time too it's not like racial science was uh, a special thing to the nazis um some of the research that they were using you know came from the us some of the laws that they created around racial science were based on american laws you know so we we had states in the united states that had laws against miscegenation which is the mixing of the races mm-hmm. so you had state laws against a, a black person and a white person getting married and this is after slavery. This is after, you know, the uh, constitutional amendment to free the slaves. I mean, this is in the 20th century. These things are happening. And racial science is a real thing. And so this kind of gets to where um, they were using racial science to kind of justify uh, around the world why, uh, well, Europeans were in charge. Mm-hmm. So, because at the same time, you have French and English and Belgian colonies in Africa. Um, you have the English that own, I mean, not necessarily own, but they colonized the entire Indian subcontinent. So this is also the time where the sun can never set in the British Empire because the British are around the world and they're controlling pieces, huge pieces of Africa, huge pieces of uh, Southeast Asia and uh, racial science. This idea that, well, of course, all the races have something good about them. But, you know, uh, the white Europeans stand above all else because of, and this is obviously pseudoscience and going into it. Um, They use that to justify then ownership over the colonies. They use that, you know, we in the United States, uh, we used it to justify laws against white and black people getting married. Also, the idea of um, white bathrooms and black bathrooms. I mean, we had that in my, in my parents' lifetime. We were talking about my uh, uncles that had fought in the Second World War. Um, they, you know, they didn't fight with black soldiers, right? Wow. Like this, th- th- and this idea to us is so alien, that, you know, the, that you would separate, okay, well, there's the black troopers and here's the white troopers. Um, like, it's just a, it's a weird philosophy that I think in the, in the 21st century, most of us would be like, what? What are you talking about? Um, but at the time, I mean, it was a thing. And when you go into the occult roots of Nazism, that starting with this racial science is a way to start making the Germans feel better after their massive defeat in the First World War. Because, you know, so you take this after the, after the First World War, the Allied powers had never actually got to Germany before the war ended. So this is a thing, too, that... Uh, the Germans, it's super, like there's massive amounts of poverty. Um, you know, how many, a million people died in the First World War. And, but they felt like they'd never still, they still never been defeated. You know, they still, they still hadn't been defeated because uh, the English and the French soldiers had never set foot on German soil in the war. And then you have this idea that, okay, well, maybe one of the reasons we weren't just defeated is because we're not just regular people. We're part of something bigger. And uh, 
in the late 19th century, you've got this, uh, well, uh, ideological system called Ariosophy. Hmm. Okay? And that's wisdom concerning the Arians. And we're all familiar with the idea of Arian, uh, as in the, uh, the master race, the Arians. And so some of this is actually based on um, Helena Blavatsky's uh, kind of, she went to India and came back long before the Beatles went with Maharashi Yogi or whatever. Helena Blavatsky came with a whole bunch of Indian mysticism and brought that to the West. And as she brings that to the West, people are getting influenced by, okay, uh, it's the same thing as the New Age movement in the 70s and the 60s, because people start thinking, all right, well, maybe there's something to this Eastern mysticism. And then in the early uh, 20th century, uh, there's these writers, Guido von List, which is a, a great name <laughs> for a guy. Is, obviously, his ideological system is a little crazy. But uh, Guido von List and Jörg Lanz von Liebenfels. <laughs> and they were, uh, they were Austrians. And so they were working on coming up with, a like they're taking... Uh, Helena Blavatsky's a little bit of her theosophy and occultism that she brought back from India and then combining it with this, you know, racial science and racial theory. And so as they're doing that, uh, you have this idea that the, the Aryans, which in reality actually applies to these people that lived in uh, Iran and India and Persia. Uh, so they're not even like really... Europeans, like where the Germans are living. But what these guys propose is that the purest form of human, the master race, is the, is the, is the Nordic type. That's the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, and they originally came up in Europe, but thousands of years ago, they spread to all these different continents, and they helped form the other, uh, you know, the great civilizations. So the Aryans had gone to India, had, you know, bred with the native Indians and kind of, and they helped form the Indian civilization. It's this idea that your destiny is based in your DNA. I mean, it's the original identity politics mm -hmm. because, they, you know, you're defining yourself um, by the group. And so they start with these, you know, these ideas that, you know, the, the purest form of person, the Nordic type and the Germans aren't completely Nordic, but we are a majority Nordic. And so we're going to breed more, you know, we're going to selectively breed within our own population to bring out more of the Nordic tendencies. Because at the same time, they're also kind of understanding genetics for the first time. Because mm -hmm. Gregor Mendel had discovered the genes, you know, genetics with the flies um, in the 19th century. And how, okay, well, if I breed these flies together, then the kids will have um, the behaviors, you know, of the uh, parents and things. So what the Germans are trying to do then is now we're trying to selectively breed in, in, in the Hitler youth. This is the kind of classes they had. So they're getting racial science uh, as kids. And so that kind of idea, like that starts forming the basis, this, you know, they're influenced by Indian mysticism and it's, it's kind of a bastardized version uh, that brings back. And so they take little bits of that and then they start taking bits of uh, like Germanic paganism. And so they want to get away from uh, Christianity because, uh, well, Christianity comes straight from Judaism Right? I mean, Jesus was Jewish. Okay, spoiler. <laughs> nice. Uh, so they're bringing in this idea. They want, you know, Germany for the Germans. And so they start going back and it's like, okay, well, we're talking about the original Germanic people, the Aryan race. And the Aryan race were not Christians. Mm. They were pagans. And so there's different orders of uh, the, 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 the most famous... Uh, order of like German occultists uh, after the First World War is the Thule Society. And uh, they were a cult and a, and a Volkish group. Hmm. And I, would, I, I hope I'm saying Volkish right because it's got the umlaut over the O. So like Volkish, uh, I think would be the way to say it from my German class. Okay. Um, 
But that's an ethnic and national mo- movement from the late 19th century up until and part of the Nazi era. And it's this idea of blood and soil. So, um, you know, it's, it's obviously uh, a nationalist organization where we were born in Germany. Um, you know, we are part of the soil. We are part of the land. This is our nation. So the Thule Society, uh, you know, believed in this like ethnic and nationalist group, and, you know, at, uh, at the expense of all others. And they're the ones who, you know, they're, they're uh, saying the Germanic people, the Nordic race, um, and they're into magic. All right. Now we're so, talking. No. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, you know, that's the thing. There's this book that comes out in uh, 1960 called The Morning of the Magicians. And uh, it's, you know, part of it talks about uh, the Thule Society and the Vril Society uh, as philosophical precursors to the Nazi party. Um, and in, in The Morning of Magicians, which actually uh, I hadn't read the book. I hadn't even heard of this book before a couple of years ago. But for some reason, I recognized it. And that's because there's a track on the Flaming Lips album, Yashimi Battles the Pink Robots, called In the Morning of the Magicians. Oh, yeah. It's a good one. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Um, so they were, so uh, Flaming Lips uh, have used it as inspiration as well. But so in this particular book, it talks about the Thule Society and the real society and, the, and these Volkish movements. And this idea that they were in communication with the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, who were actually, uh, well, it was a magical order in Great Britain. And their focus was on spiritual development, uh, theurgy. A lot of contemporary Wicca Hmm. seems to have been inspired by the Golden Dawn. And there's all these different English aristocrats who are involved in the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And they're friends with Alastair Crowley. And they're performing magic. And everybody writes in secret languages and ciphers and dresses up. And they have initiation, like the Masons and things like that. So... So the Thule Society takes a lot of its inspiration from the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And also the thing is, is that the English are also considered one of the Nordic races as part of these master race in the racial hierarchy. And so the English are considered one of these master races. And Hitler himself was kind of obsessed with the English. Uh, Hitler's really into, the, like, he's really into things. He really wanted them to, like, be on his team. <laughs> um. I was almost even hoping that after he invaded Poland, that they wouldn't attack. Wow. And I, I thought that was, I was like, yeah. oh. So like he was, um, that he was so you know, fascinated with the English and then realized that this Thule society was also fascinated. And the members list are people who are eventually going to be uh, Nazis, like Rudolf Hess uh, and Gottfried Feder and other guys who were in the Nazi party. Not that necessarily Hitler went, but the Thule Society has got these uh, guys who eventually would become large in the Nazi party and would become there. So there is this magical society in the 1920s in Berlin. And eventually uh, there's a dust up and like the Thules, they get uh, like the society gets broken up and like le- they get legally dissolved, you know. So uh, there's a fight with them and. Uh, the, the leaders of the Nazis eventually, and so the Thules eventually get broken up. But, uh, you know, one of the guys who was uh, in the Thule Society and was actually um, a, a public speaking, this is my favorite, he's a public like speaking coach for Hitler, is this guy named uh, Eric Jan Hanussen. And he was a clairvoyant. Oh, okay. So, um... And he's actually Jewish, so that becomes problematic. Yeah. But, uh, okay, let's take that back. I don't know that he was in the Thule Society, but he'd worked with people who were in the Thule Society. Oh, okay. Uh, especially when it came to um, meeting with Hitler and helping with his public speech. Because, so Hanussen performed mind reading and hypnosis acts in Berlin, and that's what made him famous. So he was a mesmerizer. Okay. And... It was claimed that he was a supporter of the Nazis despite his Jewish ancestry, which was like an open secret. Hmm. So like he didn't talk about it, but everybody, everybody knew. And they say that uh, 
He had, you know, taught Hitler crowd control techniques of using gestures and dramatic pauses uh, in ways that would, you know, get get the crowd really into it and um, mesmerize the crowd. But the, uh, what Hanussen is probably the most famous for is, I mean, he would do different clairvoyant things. He'd do future predictions. Like kind of like how George Norrie has psychics on or whatever yeah, on December sure. 31st. Like they were doing that back in the 1920s with mesmerists and people like that. Um, he also wrote uh, uh, in magazines that had as- astrological columns and things. And uh, his mansion was called the Palace of the Occult. <laughs> and it had fortune-telling games. He turned it into like an interactive theater. And so he was a, I mean, he was a big deal. Um, in 1932, uh, he's at a race. Um, the, uh, the, I guess it was a motor race that they had in the 30s. And so uh, while at the bar, one of the drivers challenges him to, to predict the winner of the following day's race. And he jokes around with everybody, but he says, I'll tell you what, uh, I'm going to write two names on a piece of paper. I'm going to fold it up and put an envelope and I'm going to give it to the bartender. And so the bartender cannot open it until after the race. And then he said, one of us at this table will win tomorrow and another will die. Oh. The, two na- the two names are both in this envelope. Wow. During the race, one of the drivers died. And one of the guys who was else, I mean, it's not to say one of them's going to win because he's with a lot of the different drivers from the race uh-huh. or whatever at the table. So, yeah, um, that, that increases the probability of somebody <laughs> at the table. Right. But he predicted the two people, um, the person that died and the person that won, those are the names in the envelope. Wow. So that, you know, he became famous for that. Um, also, he seemed to predict the Reichstag fire. Hmm. And... That the Reichstag fire was like a false flag event, where uh, the Nazis had the Nazi party actually had set like the Parliament building, the Reichstag, on fire, and then blamed it on the communists, and that's what led kind of Hitler to uh, seize power in 1933, because he's like somebody's got to stop the communists. Wow. And so that's kind of the, that makes me think about the Patriot Act or whatever. Like, okay, we got to take power here because uh, you can't, we got to worry about these terrorists. It's just temporary, guys. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, and then it's still here. But, you know, people argue whether that was really clairvoyance because he's like the parliament will burn um, or uh, he actually had inside information because he was friendly with the Nazis. Um, anyway, Hitler's psychic. I guess, Hanussen, he was assassinated on March 25th, 1933. And people believe that was by uh, an organization that was the um, precursor to the SS. Because he was competition to Hermann Goering and Joseph Goebbels uh, for attention of the Fuhrer. Gesundheit. And so, be- <laughs> I know, that's right. <laughs> uh, but that's because of all, you know. So, because of his famous clairvoyance, even though he was Jewish, uh, Hitler paid attention to him. And so then he becomes competition to the other ministers. Mm. And these guys are obviously fierce, nasty dudes. They're Nazis. Right. The real deal. <laughs> Not some dude in his basement or whatever with a swastika flag, like real deal. So they're going to kill you. And they did. Wow. And so uh, Eric Jan Hannison was killed. Um, interestingly enough, when we talk about that Hitler was taught these kind of methods for mesmerizing a crowd. I was looking and I found a, uh, a really interesting article from a 1942 magazine called The Omnibook. <laughs> and so 1942 is still, uh, it, it's still during the Second World War. And they've got an interview uh, with Carl Jung, Dr. Carl Jung, the guy who gave us the, the Jungian archetypes. Yeah. Right? And so if you guys haven't heard of uh, like Jung and his archetypes, the real idea is that humans have not necessarily a stereotype, but there are certain different, uh, I mean, archetype is still the best word, but there's, there's different role, there's roles in human society. Um, and we see those people in a certain way. And it's almost that we are uh, programmed to see those roles of a mother, of a warrior. Hmm. Uh, you know, and you see people in those roles and then you think of them as those roles in your head and then yourself how you judge yourself a lot is by how you compare those roles of the provider, of the father, uh, of just think of, of the leader. Think of those roles in life. And so Dr. Young had seen Hitler speak 
And I mean, he did a little psychoanalysis in this particular Omnibook magazine. And he's like, Hitler belongs in the category of the truly mystic medicine man. His body does not suggest strength. The outstanding characteristic of his physiognomy is its dreamy look. I was especially struck by that when I saw pictures taken of him in the Czechoslovakian crisis. There was in his eyes the look of a seer. You know, few foreigners respond uh, at all, yet apparently every German in Germany does. It is because Hitler is the mirror of every German's unconscious. But of course, he mirrors nothing from a non-German. He is the loudspeaker which magnifies the inaudible whispers of the German soul until they can be heard by the German conscious ear. He is the first man to tell every German what he's been thinking and feeling all along in his unconscious about German fate, especially since the defeat in the World War. And the one characteristic which colors every German soul is the typically German inferiority complex, the complex of the younger brother, of the one who is always a bit late to the feast. Hitler's power is not political, it is magic. And to understand magic, you must understand what the unconscious is. It is that part of our mental constitution over which we have little control and which has stored all sorts of impressions and sensations, which contains thoughts and even conclusions of which we are not aware. So that idea that when Hitler is speaking, you know, he is, he's mesmerizing. He's using people's unconscious. He is not necessarily controlling them, but he is inspiring them. And a lot of what inspired people what comes with this mythic quality of the German people, this occult, this occult idea that we are predestined. I mean, they, you know, the Germans would use that in, in the idea of the Third Reich. Okay, so what's the First Reich? Reich means empire. Mm-hmm. That's just a straight up the German word for empire. Um, so the First Reich is the Holy Roman Empire. The second Reich is out of von Bismarck's, like Prussia, the you know the Germany that fought in World War One, and then this is the Third Empire, and this is the empire that will last a thousand years. So when they say that the Reich that will last a thousand years, there's even a prophetic quality about that, right? Yeah, I'll say. And so they're using that power of myth, that power of religion. Um, so no wonder they want to turn people away from Christianity. Because if, you know, people stick by uh, their Christian religion, then they're not going to feel the power of the ancient German pagan myth. They're going to stick to this Jewish religion that is the Italians have, you know, that's been in, uh, the headquarters is in Italy and stuff, instead of having that uh, dedication to, you know, the German, Germany for Germans kind of thing. And I'd never really thought about it like that. You just think about a, a superiority complex. Right. That, that people have. Like, okay, well, obviously, we're, well, the idea that they actually had an inferiority complex because uh, the Germans didn't have the same kind of colonies that the English and the French had. The English and French got their act together um, when it came to becoming a full nation a lot sooner um, than the Germans did. I mean, Germany doesn't even become a thing really until 1871. They're just various Prussian kingdoms and stuff. So it's this idea that well, of course, I mean, who acts the crazy? The people who feel the most to lose, who feel the weakest, are the ones who are the most susceptible to this kind of mythos, using a cult to control people's minds and to, to inspire them. And so, you know, I think that kind of idea is something I hadn't really thought of before, is that they were creating a new myth, and there was decades of work done beforehand to kind of do it. Uh, and the mysticism of the late 19th century and early 20th century that we think of, you know, in the United States, we had the spiritualist movement, you know, that was huge in that certain time. And people were into that kind of stuff. Well, it wasn't just here. It was all over the world. But in places like Europe, they were doing more things about where they have thousands of years of history. They were trying to recreate a history or um, revise it. I right. Guess. So there you go. Revision. Right. So they revise history to make it so uh, they can justify, uh, they can justify their superiority, and they can justify their Lebensraum. <laughs> they can get their living room and start, and that's why they want to take over Europe because we're we, they're meant to take over Europe. It's their place. So I thought that was an interesting thing. Plus, the kind of hoops they had to jump through uh, in order to be uh, allied with the uh, the Japanese. Oh yeah, you know this idea that. 
oh yes, well, you know, the Japanese race uh, is, you know, almost equal to our own race. And of course, it's better than the Slavs and the Jews, you know, and uh, the like there's this hierarchy of like, okay, there's the Nordics on top, and then they have the Asians. I mean, even uh, like Chiang Kai-shek's son, even the Chinese were considered at a like a, a level close to the Nordics. And so I didn't realize that... Uh, not only that, you know, with the Japanese allied with the Nazis, but a lot of Chinese were also allied with the Nazis and had even fought in the Wehrmacht in the different armed forces. And so the Nazis would also train Chinese soldiers. And so this idea that they're okay because, you know, their race has some relation to us and they're a little bit more pure than these other mongrels or whatever. And so they find ways to uh, revise the history that they already revised so that they can uh, make it a convenient way to be with their allies. And so that's just a little bit of the idea of what were the, uh, the philosophical underpinnings of why people would do that? How did that come in? And the thing is, some of the stuff that the, the Nazis believed in and at their, their spiritual and their philosophy, um, was interesting because you'd say like some of it was animal welfare. You know, Hitler was a vegetarian. He didn't drink. Yeah, that is Uh, really interesting. Right? Uh, They were huge supporters of animal rights, of conservation, uh, environmentalists. You know, they talked about, okay, how are we going to get rid of pollution? So you think people who are willing to kill other human beings by the millions because they consider them subhuman. So untermensch. Really, I mean, the word they would use to describe blacks and Jews and Slavs and Polacks, guys like me, Um, the Untermensch is just was an interesting thing. Like, like okay, so we want to save animals and we don't want to kill, we don't want to kill innocent animals, but we're okay with killing subhumans. Yeah, it seems so inconsistent (laughs) to have right philosophies completely backwards. They even had a ban on vivisection. So there was no animal experimentation in the Third Reich. The culture that gave us Dr. Mengele, who experimented on human beings, you know, like those, the twins experiments where he would take twins in the concentration camp and perform surgeries on one trying to get uh, the other one to feel pain and stuff. Or because you'd have twins, um, you could try two different kinds of nasty experimentation right. on them and, and see how similar bodies would react. Yeah. And so they were using twins, human vivisection of twins uh, in order to eliminate variables in scientific research. Yet vivisection on animals was completely, you know, was, ba- was banned Unbelievable. in 1933. So you have these new age movements um, inside the Nazi, yeah. the Nazi party. There's even, oh my God, there's a picture of lab animals Given the Heil Hitler, what? Like I'm looking at this, yeah, I'm looking at this, um, and the, the Wikipedia about animal welfare in Nazi Germany, and uh, there's like a you know a, like a political cartoon uh, from this German newspaper in September 1933 when they banned this section, and there's the la- they have lab animals all given the Heil Hitler oh while the guys walking like the Nazis oh, walking geez. by, and you're like, ah, that's crazy. Um, but just, you know, just this idea, because, you know, the Germans, not just when we talk about the philosophy and they wanted to like recreate their legends and everything, it wasn't just that they were trying to change how people thought about science because the physics model was created by guys like Einstein. So, I mean, in the early 20th century, Albert Einstein, who is Jewish, comes out, you know, with the theory of relativity and people think he's the smartest guy in the world. Well, how does this Untermensch come out with the smartest thing in the world? And so, you know, so then the Germans are trying to push their own theory, this this global ice theory that um, like all cosmic processes were due to global ice or, you know, due, ice was the most powerful force in the universe, was this guy. And the Germans tried to push it because it was non-Jewish. Because the, the, the science, because well, all the scientists were like, well, obviously it's BS. The guy that came up with global ice um, he said he didn't arrive at his ideas to research, but that he had received it in a vision in 1894. Wow. Huh. So, okay. So then the science that, you know, they're teaching in the German schools and that sci- they're trying to get scientists to prove is this idea that uh, 
you know, ice is the most powerful force in the universe. And this, like, this global ice theory is ridiculous. Um, but at the same time, okay, we're recreating the myths, we're recreating religion, and now we're recreating science. Hmm. So it's almost like a whole, like the Nazi culture wasn't just, like, they wanted to replace everything that was already in people's heads. And how you do that is by changing everything they know, and that's science and religion. And when you do that, then you make it easier for people to see things as, uh, see other people as subhuman. But so to help some of that conversion of people's minds, uh, they had this, this think tank called the Ananerba, and it was part of the SS I was established by Heinrich Himmler, who was the leader of the SS, and their job was promoting the racial doctrines that the, the Nazis espoused. And so they were the, like the ancient archaeology group of uh, the SS, and it was their job. When you talk about the, the groups of people who are looking for the lost ark or things like that, you know, um, that's the Ananerba, which in in German just means ancestral heritage. Ah, okay. So that's the group that does it. And they form like the ancient archaeology wing. And it's, it's funny that in 1925, uh, Hitler comes out with his book, Mein Kampf, which means my struggle. Uh, and he, you know, he writes this book and he goes into exactly, you know, what he wants to do. Um, he talks about the greatness of Germany's ancestors. Uh, he goes in the, you know, the problem that he feels about Jewish people. He's, you know, he, this is his own like propaganda book. You know, we think of like presidential candidates and stuff like that writing books before they launch their campaign so people can read it and get the ideas. And Hitler did the exact same thing. Like he, he wrote this book and in it he talks about the spear of destiny and how it inspired him. Okay. So what's the Spear of Destiny? I mean, the Spear of Destiny, it's a badass-sounded spear. Such a cool um, name. <laughs> it is. Okay, so um, for those of you who have ever been to the Stations of the Cross, uh, you know that when at, at the crucifixion, when Jesus died, after he died, the Roman soldiers had to check on him to make sure that he, he was dead before they took him off the cross and put him into the cave. So what one of the uh, soldiers did is put a spear into Jesus' side and outpoured blood and water. And actually, the blood and water is supposed to be symbolic about how Jesus was both God and man, you know, that it wasn't just blood that came out of him uh, kind of thing. Okay. But so there's this idea that, you know, this Roman soldier, and eventually people write like apocryphal stories about what happened to the Roman soldier after he stuck Jesus with a spear. Um, Longinus is his name. And, uh, but around the 7th century, the spear starts showing up as a holy relic. So it's claimed that Charlemagne carried the spear of destiny in the battle. And if you carried the spear, then it was like the Ark of the Covenant. If you carried the spear into battle, then you, you were vic victorious. And it's claimed all these different like leaders through the, the Middle Ages had carried the spear into battle, and that's what made them victorious. The thing is, is that once they lost possession of the spear, they died shortly after. So it came at a very high price. <laughs> right. So as long as you held on to the spear, you were in, you know, indestructible. But as soon as you lost it, you That's died. That's the end. Better take good care of it. Right. But Hitler was inspired, and he doesn't talk about that part of Mein Kampf, but in Vienna, there was a, uh, like a, a museum that you know, they, they showed the spear, and they said that they had it. There's a couple of different ones across Europe, but this is what a particular one they had in Vienna. And the power of its myth is what inspired Hitler, that this thing, uh, this inanimate object or whatever, um, could be such a symbol uh, and, you know, it'd be shown in a museum millennia later. Yeah. I mean, and it was said that, you know, that was one of the first things uh, when they annexed Austria was that he went to go grab the Spear of Destiny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And interestingly enough, when Patton's forces came in at the end of the war and they had captured the building that had the spear in like April of 1945, Hitler killed himself a couple of days later. Hmm. Right. So Makes people use wonder. that as that, that, right? That, uh, 
But the thing is, he also wasn't indestructible because by April of 1945, the Germans were on their last legs. Yeah. But just that idea that, okay, that was the first thing like he grabbed was this magical spear of destiny <laughs> because it was supposed to give him, I mean, in, in the beginning of the Second World War, it, I mean, the Germans were taking everybody out, yeah. you know, like they take over France, they take over the Netherlands and uh, take over Poland. They go, they invade Russia right away. They made a deal with Russia about Poland and said like, okay, Stalin, I'll tell you what, um, we're going to let you know about, if you know, if you don't mess with us in Poland or whatever, you'll be cool with us. And then Stalin's like, okay. And then the Germans attack him anyway. <sighs> so, I mean, this group of people, I mean, this is one country like fighting the entire continent yeah. and eventually most of the world. And that's the thing. So like, well, and they, you know, they got Austria before the war started. I mean, before they invaded Poland. And so uh, they did get the spear. So for the first couple of years, it might've worked. Man. But you know, that's not necessarily the only thing they were looking for. Because, you know, obviously in uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, <laughs> uh, they're, they're looking for the Holy Grail. Right. And so there are some uh, claims that they did take some time to look to see if they could find the Holy Grail during the Second World War because it's said, it said to possess awesome and devastating powers. And they wanted to use them on the Allies. But there's not too much about the Germans and the Holy Grail. But there is stuff on them wanting to find the Noah's Ark. Ah, okay. All right. So the story of Noah's Ark is that the you know the people on the planet were so wicked. You know how it is, Wendy. Mm -hmm. The people on the planet are so wicked that uh, God's like, "I'm gonna kill y'all," <laughs> and so he's gonna. He's like, "I'm gonna flood the whole." We gotta place. start over. Yeah, we're, we're starting this from scratch. And so this is the idea that um, he told Noah, all right, your family's going to be cool, but I'm going to kill everybody else. And I want you to grab two of every animal and put them on a big ark, which is a boat. So put them on this giant boat and, uh, and then I'll, you know, and then you guys will survive and you'll restart civilization. And so uh, it's said that when eventually after 40 terrible days and nights of rain, the seas finally, you know, stopped flooding and kind of retracted. And then the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat in Turkey. So I don't know why he, they might have been looking for the ark, like what they would have, like if they actually found Noah's ark, what would they do with it? Except it, maybe it was an impenetrable fortress or something like well, that, or, you know, they try to... Or just, you know, having, showing, it's like a display of... Here's what we've got. We've got this incredible historical artifact that everybody's been searching for. And we're the ones that found it. And we're the ones that now possess it. If that's, you know. <laughs> well, that's right. Um, but that also idea of controlling the myth. Yeah. Um, so they grab these religious artifacts. They can recreate the myths around yeah. them. And so if they were able to get Noah's Ark. But either way, there's uh, MI6 documents um, from Britain in 1948 that say in the closing stages of the war, there were rumors coming out of Turkey to the effect that German military personnel were then engaged in a secret program that involved flying a sophisticated spy balloon based upon radical Japanese designs over Mount Ararat as a part of attempt to photograph the area. So um, the Turkish were telling the you know, British intelligence that the Nazis are poking around looking for the Ark. Hmm. And then Nick Redfern found that in an article. Uh, called Hitler and the Ark, uh, talking about that. Nick's um, a fantastic uh, paranormal writer, if you guys haven't had a chance to check him out. But so this idea, you know, did they Nazis really perform rituals and things like that? Well, probably not. Uh, at least not to the level that we think of. We think of like some kind of Nazi priest or like in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Remember at the end, Belloc, the archaeologist, the French archaeologist, he's... Uh, you know, he's like in all these kind of robes and stuff like that and performs this little ritual before they open the ark. Mm -hmm. And we have that idea in our head of like, that's that's <laughs> Nazi occultism. Or I think about the opening scene in Hellboy where the Nazis are performing the ritual like on this ancient castle to call forth uh, the devil and, you know, get, get Hellboy uh, in order to finish the war. So did they do that? Some of them might have, like the, the Thule Society, the guys in the Thule Society sure might have, but it looks like really the Nazi hierarchy themselves, while they may have been interested in the occult, it was less a matter of using the occult to win the war. 
and more about using the occult as a way to inspire the populace. I see. Change, you know, get the people behind them because now you have a national myth. And the national myth is not the fact that we're a country that only came about in 1871 and we were losers in the First World War and that we're broke and poor and things. It's that we're not just great. We are the greatest. Mm-hmm. And we are, we are destined to be the greatest. And that, that idea of uh, you know, using mythology to do that, well, it, I mean, obviously it worked for them. Uh, in you know, in getting people on their team, and amazingly enough, it worked for people outside of Germany. Yeah, uh, and that's what I think is crazy. It's one thing if you're like a poor German, maybe your brothers died in the First World War, and things, and you don't want to be a loser. Mm-hmm. You you don't want to be the la- I mean, not necessarily a laughing stock, but that idea of the inf- inferiority complex, and someone is finally making you feel good. Someone's my yeah. Of course you're going to listen to him because that makes sense. But somebody who's not a poor German who experienced the horror of the, fr- yeah, horror of the right. First World War, why are they going to take it up? There's this woman, she was born uh, like Maximini Portas, and eventually she becomes the name of Savitri Devi Mukherjee. Mm-hmm. And she does the same thing as like Madame Blavatsky. She goes out to India. Uh, she's fascinated by Nazism. And she goes out to India because she's looking for like a pure Aryan pagan society. And for the rest of her, I mean, she changes her name from like Maximiana Portis, which is the Italian name she's born with, and eventually becomes, or I'm sorry, the French name that she's born with, and then becomes Savitri Devi, Mm -hmm. which is a much more Indian sounding name. And, you know, she's writing that um, Hitler is uh, an avatar of the Hindu god Vishnu. And she believes that um, when he killed himself, it was a sacrifice for humanity, which would lead to the end of the powers of evil. Interesting. Yeah. And she goes in and th- she's writing this in a, uh, an animal rights book called The Impeachment of Man. And, you know, she rejects, obviously, uh, Christianity and Judaism and, and what we think of the traditional religions, especially with Europe and the United States. And like her books are the ones that inspire uh, neo-Nazis afterwards. And it's that same kind of uh, occultism, this idea that men above time, you know, men against time, these are these great men uh, who have the, a bit of divinity in them, and that Hitler was one of these guys. And she's using this occult, you know, she's writing this in her book. She's, you know, sometimes she's caging it inside animal welfare books and things. And it's the same kind of, uh, you know, in, in New Age books, she's sneaking in this Nazi ideology. She ends up influencing very much uh, the Nazis in the United States in the 1960s. And one of her, not necessarily disciples, but uh, a group that's inspired by her, ends up calling themselves the New Order. And they bought 80 acres of land in New Berlin, Wisconsin. Oh, wow. Yeah, like that's still there. Um, and so like there is a like neo-Nazi occult camp. What? Like 20 minutes from our parents' house. Oh my house. gosh. <laughs> right. Who knew? Yeah. I mean, right. <laughs> when I was a kid, I had no, no. idea we had Nazi. I mean, and they probably bought it because New Berlin, right? Because they're- Right. It's, it's it sounds a, like home. Berlin. It sounds, it sounds like home. So this woman is using some of that. She goes back. She goes to India. She marries an Indian guy. Eventually, she dies in England in the early 80s because she married an Indian guy who then had, uh, he was able to move to England because India was still a colony up until the 1940s before they were independent. And, uh, and, you know, it's this idea of the Aryan race, this the purity in things, and that her influential ideas continue, that we have a neo-Nazi camp that still sticks to these kind of uh, mystical ideas uh, only a few miles away in Wisconsin. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, extremely. Anyway, so uh, Hitler and the occult on the uh, 80th anniversary of the beginning of World War II. Mm. Uh, were these guys the crazy occultists we think they were? Um, no, they're not Raiders, Raiders of the Lost Ark style, like, uh, ceremonial magicians. But they certainly understood the power of myth. And that's what they use. And the power of symbolism. 
And that's what they used to inspire the German people to obviously commit some of the greatest atrocities in human history. Hmm. So, you know, the idea of the Volkisch of the blood and soil, my country, my land, right or wrong, uh, is the inspiration for this week's song. The idea that, uh, you know, how, how could people still feel nationalist when we live in a global society? It's that same kind of inferiority complex. And that forms the inspiration for this week's Sunspot track, Fatherland. Some men just want to watch the world burn. for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Wendy, you know what the exact opposite of Nazis are? What's the exact opposite of Nazis? The awesome people who are part of our Patreon community. Oh my gosh. Yes, they're, they're nothing <laughs> so, like Nazis. So from going from like the talking about the worst people in history, I'd like to talk about the best All people right. in history. All right, yes, let's, let's end with an, another bright topic here. Right. And so uh, you guys in our hierarchy of people are a number one. So our Patreon community, thank you very much, particularly Dr. Ned. Ned. Doc is Shane, Dr. Ned, for all of the support you give us and coming to shows and everything like that. Uh, Ned's at the level uh, where he gets a shout out in every single episode. But we don't take any of our Patreons for granted. Uh, We love all of you. Yes, truly. And we would love... To love new people every single week uh, and see on the other side, Patreon community. And if you're interested in becoming part of that, you can do it for as little as a dollar a month. Um, that's not even like they said, like you could like sponsor a child for the cost of the <laughs> price of a cup of coffee every day. This is not even the cup of coffee every month. I mean, you can sponsor the scene. That's side right. Podcast. Yes. Unless it's like from Quick Trip or something. Right. Well, that, <laughs> then you can get something a little cheaper. But anyway, uh, please consider sponsorship in our Patreon community. Uh, we love having hangouts. The more Patreons we have, the more cool stuff we can do. So true. And it's fun that our, our little family's growing. 
our little Patreon community. It's slowly growing and it's wonderful to meet new people and hear your opinions directly and to hear your experiences and just talk about the paranormal and pop culture and all the things we love. So thank you so much uh, for the people who are already part of the Patreon community. But anybody else, if you're interested in joining, please consider it at othersidepodcast.com slash donate. Jawohl! <laughs> Auf Wiedersehen! <laughs> Oh, God. Uh, Okay, let's uh, save this. Germans.